Welcome to the Skin Depth Podcast, where we deliver the latest in dermatology research directly to you. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. This is Caden Carver, back with you to discuss more of the latest dermatology research. Today we will cover pros and cons of immunotherapy for melanoma, the use of 5-aminolevulinic acid photodynamic therapy for acne vulgaris, shear wave elastography to detect progression of stiff skin syndrome, dupilumab to improve sleep in atopic dermatitis, and detection of eosinophilic fasciitis using wedge biopsy or MRI. We also will feature a fellow student researcher, Mackenzie Griffith, and her team's case report of an atypical presentation of Kikuchi Fujimoto disease. We will also test your knowledge with the New England Journal of Medicine Image Challenge and Dermoscopy Question of the Week, just like we always do. So with that being said, let's jump right into it. Our first article, entitled Changes in Healthcare Cost, Survival, and Time Toxicity in the Era of Immunotherapy and Targeted Systemic Therapy for Melanoma, was published in JAMA Dermatology November 1st of 2023 by Bettini et al. Researchers conducted a retrospective cohort study of 768 patients with the aim of evaluating the cost, time burden, and overall survival associated with immunotherapies for melanoma. Following the study, researchers found that patients with melanoma treated with immunotherapy had a mean healthcare cost of $47,866 compared to $33,347 in the control group. Time burden of treatment was similar between groups at 58.7 days in the immunotherapy group and 44.2 days in the control group with a p-value of 0.2. Three-year overall survival in the immunotherapy group was 74.2% with a 95% confidence interval of 70.8 to 77.2% compared to 65.8% with a confidence interval of 62.2% to 69.1% in the control group with a p-value of less than 0.001. Limitations of this study included that costs of ongoing treatment, recurrence, disease surveillance, and indirect costs to individuals, such as transportation and lost wages, were not accounted for. Additionally, the study data was only obtained from the Ontario Cancer Registry. The main takeaway from the study is that although immunotherapy for melanoma may be more expensive and time-consuming, it is associated with improved overall patient survival rates. The next study, entitled Modified Red Light 5-Aminolevulinic Acid Photodynamic Therapy versus Low-Dose Isotretinoin Therapy for Moderate to Severe Acne Vulgaris, a prospective randomized multicenter study, was published online ahead of print in the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology, August of 2023, by Zhang et al. The multicenter randomized clinical trial evaluated the use of modified 5-aminolevulinic acid photodynamic therapy, also known as MPDT, compared to isotretinoin for moderate to severe acne vulgaris. 152 patients were randomly assigned to either up to 5 MPDT treatments at one-week intervals followed by comedone extraction or isotretinoin 0.5 mg per kilogram dose for six months. 
Researchers compared the overall effective rate, which was the number of patients with greater than or equal to 75% lesion clearance. At one month, the overall effective rates were significantly higher for the MPDT group compared to the isotretinoin group at 66.23% versus 13.33% in the intention to treat analysis population with a p-value of less than 0.001 and a 67.74% compared to 10.26% in the per-protocol population with a p-value of less than 0.001. The time to 50% lesion improvement was significantly less for the MPDT group compared to the isotretinoin group at 1 versus 8 weeks. After one month, Efficacy was higher in the isotretinoin group than the MPDT group, with 85.33% compared to 70.13% in the intention to treat population with a p-value of less than 0.05, and 97.44% compared to 75.81% in the per-protocol population with a p-value of less than 0.01. Researchers reported no significant difference in treatment efficacy at 2, 4, or 6 months. No patients in the MPDT group reported systemic side effects compared to 70.67% of patients treated with isotretinoin having systemic side effects. The main takeaway from the study was that modified red light 5-aminolevulinic acid photodynamic therapy is a reasonable alternative for the treatment of moderate to severe acne vulgaris with rapid onset, tolerable adverse effects, and comparable outcomes after six months compared to isotretinoin. The next study comes to us from Pediatric Dermatology and is entitled Characteristics and Onset of Presentation of Pediatric Stiff Skin Syndrome a retrospective cohort study of 11 patients in a tertiary care center. It was published by Sanchez Espino et al. October 20th of 2023. Researchers conducted a single center cohort study of 11 pediatric patients to evaluate the role of shear wave elastography for surveillance of sclerotic skin changes in stiff skin syndrome. Following the study, researchers reported a slight predominance of SSS, or stiff skin syndrome, in males, 54% of patients being male, and a median age at onset of 2.7 years. SSS presented segmentally in 90% of patients with 64% having unilateral and 36% having bilateral cutaneous changes which included thickened, bound-down skin with a rippled appearance. 36% of patients had sclerotic changes, 18% had hypertrichosis, 18% had lipodystrophy, 18% had range of motion limitation, and 18% had functional limitations. Prospective MRI imaging demonstrated abnormally high signal intensity in the affected tissues, predominantly involving the shoulder and pelvic girdles. Shear wave elastography showed higher values in the dermis of affected sites compared to non-affected sites, with 32.8 kilopascals compared to 18.3 kilopascals. 
infected and unaffected sites, respectively. Limitations to the study included its retrospective nature, small sample size, and lack of standardization of controls for prospective imaging studies. The main takeaway from the study is that stiff skin syndrome is characterized by segmental sclerotic changes for which shear wave elastography represents a non-invasive and objective tool for evaluating and monitoring the disease. Our fourth article for this episode, entitled Dupilumab Significantly Improves Sleep in Adults with Atopic Dermatitis, results from the 12-week placebo-controlled period of the 24-week Phase 4 randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled Dupistad study, was published in the British Journal of Dermatology November 16th of this year by Marola et al. The Phase 4 randomized controlled trial of 188 adults with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis aimed to evaluate the effect of dupilumab on sleep disturbance. Patients were randomized in a 2 to 1 ratio to receive either dupilumab 300 mg once every 2 weeks or placebo for 12 weeks, with the primary endpoint being percentage change in sleep quality from baseline assessed using a sleep quality numeric rating scale, or sleep quality NRS. Additional endpoints included percent changes in peak paritis numeric rating scale, or PPNRS, scoring atopic dermatitis, also known as SCORAD, the SCORAD Sleep Visual Analog Scale, or SCORAD VAS, the Eczema Area and Severity Index, or EZ-SCORE, and Patient Recorded Outcomes Measurement Information System, or the PROMISE T-Score. Following the study, researchers reported that dupilumab resulted in clinically meaningful improvement in sleep quality, with the sleep quality NRS least squares mean of the difference, or LSMD, of negative 15.5% and a p-value of less than 0.001, as well as improvement in secondary endpoints of PPNRS with an LSMD of negative 27.9%, p-value of less than 0.001, SCORAD uh, with an LSMD of negative 15.1%, and p-value of less than 0.001, SCORAD sleep VAS with an LSMD of negative 2.1%, and p-value of 0.001, and PROMISE T-score with an LSMD of negative 0.3, excuse me, negative 3.6%, and p-value of less than 0.001, all of these measurements at 12 weeks. The study was limited in the fact that several of the rating scales were new, limiting the amount of validating data to support their use. The follow-up duration was also limited, preventing any conclusions drawn regarding the long-term effects. The main takeaway of the study is that dupilumab improved sleep quality and pruritus for patients with atopic dermatitis at 12 weeks. This week, for our Innovations in Scoop article, we bring you one entitled Utility of Magnetic Resonance Imaging in the Diagnosis of Eosinophilic Fasciitis, a Multicenter Retrospective Cohort Study. This study was published online ahead of print by Shariari 
et al. in JAD, September of 2023. Researchers conducted a multicenter study to evaluate the use of T2-weighted MRI to diagnose and monitor progression of eosinophilic fasciitis compared to the gold standard wedge biopsy. 41 patients underwent full thickness wedge biopsy, 46 patients underwent MRI, and 23 patients underwent both full thickness wedge biopsy and T2-weighted MRI. Researchers reported a sensitivity for detecting fascial changes with eosinophilic fasciitis was 93.5% with T2-weighted MRI, while the sensitivity of wedge biopsy was 95.1%. The p-value comparing these two was 0.99, so the difference was not statistically significant. 82.6% of patients undergoing both diagnostic modalities had eosinophilic fasciitis detected on both MRI and wedge biopsy. The main takeaway from this study is that MRI may provide physicians with a non-invasive diagnostic tool for patients with eosinophilic fasciitis compared to wedge biopsy. Now, we are very excited to feature the work of a fellow medical student researcher, Mackenzie Griffith. Hello, and welcome to the Skin Depth Pod. My name is Mackenzie Griffith. I'm a third year student at Rush Medical College in Chicago, Illinois. For this week's student spotlight, I'm excited to share my team's recent publication with you entitled A Rare Acneiform Eruption Presentation of Kikuchi Fujimoto Disease, Presenting with Concurrent Systemic Lupus Erythematosus, and led by Dr. Penelope Scopus. Special thanks to Dr. Morgan Decker, one of our co-authors who is a fourth-year resident in the dermatology program. She was a great help while drafting this publication. Um, in this publication, our team reported a rare case of Kikuchi Fujimoto disease, or KFD, presenting with an acneiform skin eruption in a 48-year-old female with a history of Graves' disease. Normally, this condition presents with erythematous macules, patches, plaques, malar erythema, pruritus, or oral ulcers. Um, I was lucky to be able to see this patient and meet her while she was hospitalized and observed her inpatient dermatology consult. She initially presented to the ED with several weeks of nausea, vomiting, fevers, um, fatigue, and a non-pruritic, non-tender rash. On exam, we noted multiple erythematous to violaceous follicularly centered macules and papules that had central crusting on the preauricular cheeks, nasal dorsum, and forehead along her hairline. Um, her lab test revealed leukopenia, low C3, um, positive ANA titers, and positive anti-Smith antibodies. She also had a punch biopsy done of one of the lesions, which showed perivascular and periadnexal dermal infiltrates with focal vacular changes along the follicular epithelium. A core needle biopsy was done of one of her right axillary lymph nodes that demonstrated necrosis and abundant apoptotic material with preserved lymph node architecture. Um, this all combined with her clinical presentation led to her being diagnosed with KFD and concurrent lupus. Um, she was treated with hydroxychloroquine, prednisone, and topical tacrolimus, and her rash had improved at her one-week outpatient follow-up. Um, we found her case really interesting and ended up conducting a literature review, um, finding that this would only be the second case of KFD presenting with an acneiform rash that was ever reported in the literature, so we decided to write it up. Interestingly, the previous case report um, was not linked to lupus, 
Um, our team determined that it's important for clinicians to consider a wide differential, including KFD, when approaching patients who present with fever, lymphadenopathy, and a nonspecific rash of unknown etiology, such as in this case, and that screening for autoimmune conditions is important in KFD, given that this patient also had lupus uh, concurrently. As a medical student, I found it interesting that we didn't have a case report in our minds when we initially went to see the patient in the hospital, but as her clinical course unfolded, the physicians thought that it would be a valuable case to publish. I really enjoyed being a part of the entire process from the early stages of interviewing the patient to making edits for the manuscript revisions. I enjoyed integrating internal medicine and rheumatology tools such as the American College of Rheumatology classification criteria that we use to diagnose her lupus um, into a dermatology case since that's not always something that you do. This project is one of the reasons that I want to study complex medical dermatology and inflammatory diseases in residency. Um, I would encourage other med students who are interested in dermatology to consider writing a case report as kind of an introduction to dermatology research. Even though this paper isn't lab work or a clinical trial that you might think of when someone says research, um, I would encourage students to not underestimate the personal impact or learning opportunities that can be associated with working on a case report. Check out the link in our publication, link to our publication in the show notes for this episode. Thank you for listening, and I hope you found this case as interesting as we did. Thank you, Mackenzie, for sharing your really interesting case and also for sharing your perspective on how the case impacted you and how you hope to incorporate um, the experience into your future residency position and career as a dermatologist. Hopefully all our listeners um, are inspired and can learn and take away from your case as well. Now we're going to move on to the New England Journal of Medicine image challenge for this week. We have a seven-year-old female presenting with a one-week history of dizziness and generalized rash following an onset of a viral upper respiratory tract infection. On physical exam, you note a generalized purple macular eruption with lesions that do not blanch with applied pressure. What is the most likely diagnosis? Is it one, cutaneous larva migraines? Two, erythema infectiosum? Three, cutis marmorata? Four, cold agglutinin disease, or five, erythema ab igni. So the answer is going to be four, cold agglutinin disease. The direct antiglobulin test, i.e. the direct Coombs test, was positive for C3, and the test for cold agglutinins was positive at a 1 to 2048 dilution at 4 degrees Celsius. Cold agglutinin disease is a form of acquired autoimmune hemolytic anemia in which cold agglutinins, which are also IgM autoantibodies against red blood cell antigens that bind at cold temperatures, can cause clinical symptoms. Cold agglutinin disease can be exacerbated by viral infections as seen in this patient. For the USMLE or COMLEX, a good mnemonic can be used that includes the M's of cold agglutinin disease. IgM, mononucleosis, mycoplasma, and then Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia. Mononucleosis, mycoplasma, and macroglobulinemia can all be triggers of cold agglutinin disease and the IgM reminds you that this is the uh, specific type of antibody associated with cold agglutinin disease. 
Dermatologic manifestations of cold agglutinin disease include extensive levito reticularis and acrocyanosis, which is purple discoloration of the tip of the nose, ears, fingers, and toes. For other answers, <clears throat> number one, cutaneous larva migrans. This typically causes serpiginous appearing plaques and is caused by ankylostoma brasiliense. Two, erythema infectiosum. This is caused by Parvo B19, resulting in the classic erythematous patches on bilateral cheeks, also known as a slap cheek rash, as well as reticular erythema on the extremities or trunk, and erythema infectiosum classically occurs in children. Three, cutis marmorata. This condition does present with a dark purple to red purple brown reticular vascular pattern. However, it mainly occurs in infants or newborns as a result of transient shifts in cutaneous blood flow. Cutis marmorata telangiectata congenita persists even with rewarming and is associated with limb atrophy. Number five, erythema ab igni. This is a reticulated net-like erythematous patches caused by heat or infrared radiation exposure to a particular site. The most common sites being the shins, lower back, and anterior thighs. These can be due to triggers such as space heaters, heating pads, or even laptops. Alright, great work to everyone who tackled that question. Now we're going to move on to the dermoscopy question of the week. And I'm just going to start by giving you some dermatoscopic findings of a lesion, and then we'll ask the question from there. So, on dermoscopy, you note that a lesion has white pinpoint milia-like cysts, comedo-like openings, fissures and ridges, network-like structures, and hairpin vessels. What treatment is recommended for the following lesion? Is it A cryotherapy, B, 5-fluorouracil, C, Mohs surgery, D, wide local excision, E, chemotherapy, or F, observation? The answer to this question is F, observation. This is a two-part question that requires you to first identify the lesion as a seborrheic keratosis, given the dermatoscopic findings. This lesion is commonly seen in older patients, usually on the chest and back, and the cause of the benign lesions is largely unknown. No treatment is needed for seborrheic keratoses as they are completely benign. Some patients will opt for elective removal due to cosmetic reasons. However, no treatment is required and most patients leave them alone. Seborrheic keratoses are often described grossly as having a waxy or stuck-on appearance. On histopathology, they are characterized by papillomatous epidermal hyperplasia of uniform and monotonous keratinocytes and the presence of pseudocysts. For thinner, newer lesions, they tend to have a moth-eaten or scalloped appearance under dermoscopy. For thicker, more developed lesions, they tend to have the following features. White pinpoint milia-like cysts which are round structures that appear very bright when contrasted with their dark or brown-black surroundings. These can be seen in the background of darker pigment, so are, is often described as stars in the night sky. As we discussed, additional features under dermoscopy 
include comedo-like openings, which are round to ovoid craters that have brown or black comedo-like plugs, fissures and ridges, which are usually linear and come together or overlap to form a cerebriform pattern, Dermoscopy of seborrheic keratoses also classically shows network-like structures, which form from the many fissures overlapping, and hairpin vessels, which are whitish halos around blood vessels. It is important to keep in mind that the features we discussed are best visualized with non-polarizing dermoscopy. Since you will likely see multiple seborrheic keratoses each day in the dermatology clinic, I really encourage you to look up dermatoscopic images of seborrheic keratoses online so you can begin to recognize the features that we discussed for yourself. Well, that's all we have for you with this episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. Thank you very much to everyone who stuck around for the full episode. We really hope it was educational to you and gave you some great exposure to the latest dermatology research. If you want more content similar to this, visit our website at skindepthderm.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Please send us any questions or comments to info at skindepthderm.com. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.